Welcome to the Final Girls Podcast, where we worship at the altar of Jennifer Jack. I'm Anna Bogutska, co-founder of the Final Girls Collective and your podcast host. If you're new to the show, welcome. In this fourth series of the podcast, we're looking at teen horror, how it's evolved from the 1970s onwards and why teenagers, and especially teenage girls, make for some of the most compelling protagonists of the genre. And what film fits this bill more perfectly than the previously maligned, recently reappreciated 2019 girl magnum opus Jennifer's Body? Written by Diablo Cody, fresh off her Oscar win, directed by Karen Kusama and starring Megan Fox and Amanda Seyfried, this film was so badly mismarketed at the time of release that it took us about a decade to fully recognize its merits. What you're going to hear is a lightly re-edited version of an episode we recorded last year as part of our female monster season, which of course you should totally revisit and absolutely forgive my ever-evolving mixing skills. This episode also marks the first appearance on the show of now-frequent guest and dear friend of the pod, Jordan Cruciola, the world's most renowned Jennifer's Body scholar and power podcaster if there ever was one. Do follow and support her work. A quick reminder, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at the Final Ghost UK. We also have a Patreon where you can support our work and get occasional bonus episodes specifically looking at new horror releases. Last week, we reviewed the new Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which just came out on Netflix. And if you are new to the show and for some reason have never seen Jennifer's Body before, please do know we spoil everything pretty much from the very beginning. And with all of that said, please enjoy our retake on Jennifer's body. Jordan, I'm so pleased you agreed to come onto this podcast to talk about these two murderous cheerleader movies with me. You're you're absolutely right. Somehow, wow, somehow till this very moment, I I had not put them both in the cheerleader canon and they absolutely are. Wow. Much, much disrespect to the devil's kettle devils on that one uh, for just taking them out of the picture entirely. Uh, no, I'm thrilled. I am thrilled to be here. I, I'm always happy to talk about Jennifer's body. And I am always happy at the idea of someone bringing, but I'm a cheerleader, or not but I'm a cheerleader, all cheerleaders die into the conversation <laughs> because it does not get enough love in horror circles or anywhere. But come on, we are the ones who should be talking about it. This is absolutely true. And I'm also only mildly um, scared or actually really excited to <laughs> be talking to the world's foremost Jennifer Jefferson's body scholar. Yep. yep so I'm fully self- expecting I, to get yeah, schooled. I, I, that is that is self-styled and I stand with it in, <laughs> in, in strong conviction. So as, as, as I said to you before we started formally recording here, if anybody else would like to claim the title of world's foremost Jennifer's body scholar, Find me on Twitter. We should have a conversation because I think we've got a lot. We've got a lot of notes to share with each other. So let's bring our minds together. If you too think you are the foremost Jennifer's Body scholar in the world. So let's kick off with Jennifer's Body first. You always do what Jennifer tells you to do. It's just that I like the same things that she likes. Hey, Jennifer. You look really pretty. Why don't you just come by my place? That was random. This isn't really your house, is it? We can play mommy and daddy. No way. We always share your bed when we have slumber parties. Jennifer's evil. I know. No, I mean, she's actually evil, not high school evil. Chip is looking really cute to me lately. How is he tasting these days? You are never a good friend. You could have anybody that you want. Hi, Chip. 
people killing people. No, I'm killing boys. Are you scared? I you only murder boys. I go both ways. I will finish you if I have to. Okay. You can barely finish gym class. So what is your relationship with the film and with Karen Kasama's films in general? I am a um, big proponent of Karen Kasama, a uh, big fan. Uh, the funny thing about me and Jennifer's body is I was so excited to see it when it came out. I was fully hyped. Big Megan Fox fan. Loved Megan Fox in the Transformers movies. Uh, I absolutely understand the the correct critiques of the way she was handled at such a young age. Um as a as a sex object in a in a movie playing a teenager in which she was hardly maybe not even done being a teenager herself uh in Transformers but honestly actually if you take the performance for on its face Michaela Baines is an actually great action heroine and Michaela Baines and Sam Witwicky together are actually one of my favorite screen couples ever Shia Buff and Megan Fox had tremendous chemistry together and she in her moxie brought so much more to that character than was on the page um she doesn't really actually get enough credit for bringing so much energy and so much life into Michaela as she did Mm -hmm. uh it just sort of gets written off as like a trashy action role but it's actually a pretty great action heroine role and as such I didn't have uh there was no hang-up with me for Megan being the face Mm -hmm. of the film I was very excited I was like oh my god it's a horror movie and it's Megan Fox. I get to have both things at the same time. This sounds rad. And I liked, I, I liked Juno very much. Um, but I was, it, I seemed, I felt like I was getting even more excited to see how Diablo Cody was going to bring her specific style mm-hmm. to, to what was being, you know, teased poorly in the trailers from the movie at the time it was coming out in 2009. But I was very excited for the blend. Like I, I was like, wow, these are, and I, Hey, Amanda Seyfried, like I'm a big love fan. I like her on that show. I would like to see her big doll eyes put in this role and see what she can do opposite Megan. So I was super jazzed, went and saw it, loved it. Uh, the, the the kiss had no idea that was coming, knocked me out of my chair, uh, went and saw it multiple times in theaters, had no idea. I didn't have a lot of friends at the time who really liked horror movies. Um, so the fact that nobody else around me wanted to see it was like, yeah, I get it. Like, I don't have many friends who I would go see a vampire movie with anyway, like a succubus movie with. So the fact that like people around me weren't clamoring to see it, it was like, yeah, I get that this is more my thing. I didn't understand people didn't like this movie genuinely till like five years ago. I didn't wow. understand. Like, I, I, you know, I mean, I didn't give a shit about like box office or anything like mm-hmm. that. And I wasn't like looking up Rotten Tomato scores. Like, I was doing culture journalism, but I was at Wired and it was sort of very much more adjacent to like the core of entertainment Mm. industry journalism that I would move more toward at Vulture New York Magazine. So I was just kind of like, I was only sort of reporting on stuff from like an interest in fan point of view as opposed to like an industry beat reporter perspective. When people, when I started seeing like the, you know, film Twitter, uh, I, I know so many wonderful writers from there now and so many delightful people, but as an entity, it's horrible. And when I started seeing the like film Twitter mindset happening around Jennifer's body, the like the but the the but actually it's it's bad before it's sort mm-hmm. of reclamation started. I was like, anybody anybody out there thinks Jennifer's body is not a great movie? No idea. Mm. Fully no idea. So then I was I would I had long been outraged as a Fox fan at her mistreatment in the media for ages, like forever angry about that. So then I I had a new anger that was about defending Jennifer's body that I didn't know I needed to do, an action I didn't know I needed to do on top of my longstanding, like in defense of Megan Fox mindset. So Mm. I only came late to the fact that this movie needed to be reappraised. But then once it did, I was like, well, I guess I've got to throw myself all into this because it's extremely important. This is extremely important, this movie to me and to genre cinema. And okay, hell yeah. And then once a couple years later, once the sort of reclamation Mm -hmm. started, which anybody is free to correct me of sort of when this formally started cropping up. But I sort of hang the online grassroots um, reclamation of the movie on that Mary Sue piece 
Um, I forget who the writer mm-hmm. was, but I believe the title of it was. So when are we going to apologize to Megan Fox? That that to me was the first thing that started. And and then there were ver- there were variations on that article that started coming out. And then there were the feature pieces that started coming out, like Louis Peitzman's great feature at BuzzFeed, where he spoke mm-hmm. to Karin and Diablo about it. And and then it started getting more of a formalized movement. So that happened, I think, around like 20, I think that was 2017. I think Lewis's piece came out in 2018. And then 2019 was the 10th anniversary of it, which mm-hmm. by then, by the time the anniversary came around, the the conversation seemed to have shifted very distinctly to instead of being, hey, guys, Megan, like Jennifer's body is actually good to, hey, guys, it's time to celebrate that really good movie, Jennifer's Body. Like, it, it felt like there was a tone of the defensiveness in the tone of defending it. Mm-hmm. The defensiveness in the tone of protecting it had changed to a celebratory tone. Because it, it kind of seems like we won. Like, it seems like it seems like mm-hmm. the, the Jennifer's Body protectors won. Like, we won. So, it's an interesting point to, before we go into the actual movie itself, the text itself, mm-hmm. it's interesting to understand the context of it, to why it even needed reclaiming and i find it fascinating that you kind of discovered sort of mm-hmm. after the fact after you'd already fallen in love with the film but why do you think it was um so reviled or reviled is a strong word but there was a really distinctive antagonism towards it from the very very start at the time of release oh yeah and why do you think it was and kind of what about it kind of made it so divisive around the time where it was actually formally out in 2009 it's it's we were just so on the we were so on the precipice of so many aspects of it working and of so many of being able to get so many aspects of it that I think we were we were getting attuned enough to the conversations that would be fundamental to Jennifer's body to where Mm -hmm. they were still agitating people like they were close enough to the discourse to where they weren't like what what's what's feminism what's what's gay people what's queerness those things weren't so outside our perspective that they were like an unknown evil they were close enough, though, to where they were experiencing almost like this pre-lash in the discourse before they were actually going to become, I think, fully fledged part of the ways that we break down and talk about pop culture generally in ways that are widely, now widely accepted. But it was like mm-hmm. this sort of last, it was like that last gasp of an era, not of like, we made it, we solved misogyny. No, we have not. But mm-hmm. we are at a point now where calling out misogyny is a routine part of examining art. Whereas at that time, it was sort of the the dying days of the of media culture where you couldn't, where that wasn't de rigueur, mm. where it wasn't allowed, where it was unheard of, and where m- magazine like magazine feature piece after feature piece was being you know profile after profile was being written about actresses where they were like framed by their male writers to sound like first dates and they were negging and they were sexist and they were objectifying so often and. Like, I, th- I think I saw somebody on Twitter post once last year, like every woman with a every woman who had a profile written about her between like 2000 and 2010 deserves an apology. Mm-hmm. And then someone responded. It was like, or every woman of all time. And but there was this like particular <laughs> form of celebrity access journalism that happened around that mm-hmm. time when blogs were popping up like per- Perez Hilton and like the superficial mm-hmm. where we had more access to celebrities entirely on our own terms because social media hadn't come around yet. And so there was this vying mm-hmm. for attention and there was this star making machine that demanded imaging and persona building in a way that almost seemed to reflect like this, the, the, the prefab band days of like the monkeys back in the 1960s like, mm. and seventies, like the, like the Jacksons and the monkeys and these sort of family units where we created a show around them and a whole, a whole product packet, like a whole packaging ecosystem around them. And it felt like we were doing a lot of that in the late 90s and 2000s, again, around like boy bands and pop stars, Britney Spears and Backstreet Boys. So there was this commodification of the starlet that felt like it was dredging up this old bad thing we had done in like the mid-century. And it was vicious because it was the internet too. And that was making everything more competitive. It was meaning there was more space to be taken up, which means there were more covers and websites for people to be on and instead of like moderating access it seemed like the goal of publicity was to put your star your product into as many things as possible and with megan the branding that that she very much was aware of at the time was the sex bomb image was was the you know 
the girl on the cover of GQ being photographed by Terry Richardson in a bikini and like with a sucker in her mouth. And Megan was very much aware that what yeah. appealed to people about her, particularly men, was this pinup image, was this wild bisexual image, was the like basically the Mrs. You know, Mrs. Steal Your Man, maybe Mrs. Steal Your Girl after her like, you know, comments about like making it sound like she, you know, would like to engage in a relationship with Olivia Wilde and, and that were that were much mm-hmm. ballyhooed at the time. There was so much of an idea around her that it became a sort of inescapable trap. And and she knew that, too. You read any profile, substantial profile of Fox from the time. She was very much, I think that the, the title of the New York Times profile that came out about her in 2008 or 9 was like the, like the making and unmaking of Megan Fox. And it was a full mm. meta examination of Megan's role in creating her image and knowing that it was effective while also carrying with it the burdens of backlash that she was entirely keyed into. But she was, regardless of her self-awareness, spoken about as a bimbo. She was Mm -hmm. taken down for her role in these thin, fluffy Transformers films. She was reduced to a sex object. Um, And it didn't matter what she said. It it didn't matter her intellectual role in her own life and her self-awareness. People decided these things about Megan Fox, and it was a time, too, that we could objectify comfortably and we wouldn't self-examine. We wouldn't we wouldn't scrutinize that at all. It was also a time where I feel like when women were extremely complicit in that problem. But I just don't like her face. There was a lot of condemnation of mm. like, you know, er, like early Taylor Swift was like, that. I mean, she just annoys me. You know, I just don't like her face. And that could be like yes. a valid criticism for women being bitchy about other women. And mm. in that, like, I don't know, competitive or consumptive or, you know, covetous way that things get sort of mixed up with sort of female, female relationships. But and then there was, you know, Diablo Cody. Again, I've said this over and over again. I I cannot hmm. c- cite where this quote came from. I do not remember where it came from, but I swear to God, it's real. There is a quote where Diablo Cody Cody talks about she had won her Oscar for Juno, and she knew she had yes. the most capital in Hollywood that she was ever going to have, and she had this dream project she wanted to make, and it was Jennifer's body, and she knew hmm. it was going to take all that capital from the Oscar to get. But she knew she had her carte blanche after that. So she was like, fine, I'm going to finally make that. I'm going to make this movie because now's the like probably one time I'm going to get to do it. And then she effectively mm-hmm. ended up spending all that cultural capital on that one movie. And you have uh, Karin Kusama, who has gone from, you know, girl fight, you know, breaking out at Sundance with like Michelle Rodriguez to getting that tap yes. to make a studio film in Eon Flux. So she had like in the eyes of the studio system sort of leveled up in that way where they could hand her blockbuster. She had earned her place. And so coming off of Flux, you know, a big Charlize Theron movie, she got attached to this at Fox Atomic. And so you had these three women and Fox was definitely or Kusama was definitely a more low key figure at the time than, than Cody and Fox mm-hmm. were. But the alchemy of all three of them coming together. And it's kind of crazy how it worked. The marketing was horrible. The way the studio tried to get this movie out was so wrong headed and so misguided and, and betrayed the spirit of the movie. And yet they were basically left alone to make the movie they wanted to make. Like when you hear mm-hmm. Karin and Diablo talk about making this movie, there were tri- there were trials, but it it seems to start to get most heated when the packaging and presentation of the movie was what became mm. a com- was what became an issue. It wasn't like they had a ton of interfering studio notes. They didn't have a producer there staring over their shoulder trying to get them to change the movie. They didn't end up with some Frankenstein product that wasn't what they intended. They made the movie they meant to make, which is kind of incredible. The studio. Fox at the time, Fox Atomic, just had no goddamn idea how to put it out there correctly because they didn't ex- they didn't understand the actual target audience to be valid uh, to be a valid audience. They didn't understand young women to be a valuable commodity as far as like people with dollars to spend. They just went straight for that teen boy audience that they thought would follow Megan from the Transformers movies. And especially, it's it's interesting you pointed out it's um, at the precipice of teen girls and especially well women in general mm-hmm. being validated as a valid genre audience yeah. as well because this is this is entirely a both a Karen Kasama film, a Diablo Cody film, and a Megan Fox it's film. Wild. But they seem to have only latched on to the superficial Megan Fox <clears throat> aspect. It's like yes, but the audience for this film is not that necessarily the Transformers audience mm-hmm. or the audience that you marketed Transformers yeah. to. So it needs a different packaging language, which is, you know, notoriously what this film was failed at. Mm-hmm. And obviously it's not the responsibility of the filmmakers, but of the the marketing departments and the studios. But the marketing departments live blissfully in the shadows and are never 
blamed as much as the stars or the filmmakers are for any film quote unquote flopping well yeah and 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 and, and karen has been very on the record <clears throat> multiple mm-hmm. times at this point saying that uh like there was a a, a young man in a test screening of, of jennifer's body who had but one note on the card the feedback card that he handed over uh at the end of his time in there and it was needs more boobs and <clears throat> that was who the studio was listening to so yep. the first trail, the first marketing materials that came out took Amanda Seyfried completely out of the the visuals, uh, elided entirely over the fact that the best friendship at the core of this movie was its central love story, and mm-hmm. made it look like you were going to see Megan Fox taking off her clothes, and it was utterly unrepresentative of the tone, the themes, the mm-hmm. the facts of the story itself, and completely betrayed why uh, Megan agreed to do this movie in the first place why diablo wanted megan specifically to be in this movie and Mm -hmm. surely why karen signed on to direct this kind of story at this time like they just they they couldn't have fucked it up worse and and i think even there's a there's a vulture old vulture link of adam brody even talking about how the studios couldn't have done a worse job only could have could have only almost done such a bad job of getting the movie out if they had intentionally been trying to screw it over. Like even he acknowledged, I think, on the movie's press tour, like I don't know how mm. they could have screwed that up so bad on accident. Like was some like who made who angry? Like because that was completely <laughs> terrible. So let's get into the movie itself because it's going to be a much more joyous part of our conversation. So let's talk about Jennifer, and she's inextricably linked with. Megan. Mm-hmm. So what do you think of Jennifer as the lead character monster of the film, but also of Megan's portrayal of her and all the metatextual layers attached to her playing Jennifer? When you can bring in when when it when it is there's the the great stars aligning circumstance of being able to bring in the narrative of the star themselves into their role. And if you're able to if you're able to fluidly in integrate the star and the character in a way that provides added value to the story it's such a wonderful gift to be able to see that every so often in in film or television um allison williams in both get out and then subsequently in the perfection blake lively in a simple favor the impact of those characters and the the way that you buy into the twists about them is amplified so much more because you bring in your baggage about what you know about those actresses and it makes the reveals and it makes it makes the reveals even crazier and even more surprising. And it makes the fun of their characters even more delightful because you are unpacking your own biases as you go. And you're like, well, that was a fun time. Like you're almost glad you came in with your assumptions. So you could be kind of kicked Mm -hmm. in the teeth and told you were wrong. And you're like, I'm so pleased to have been made a fool of by thinking I knew where this was going. And with um, Megan Fox in this role, Diablo knew she she could read she knew how the press treated her and she saw how the press Hmm. treated Megan and she knew that for what she was trying to say with this movie um the sacrifice that Jennifer Check would be in this to to the idea that that she would be sacrificed for in this world was very much embodied by Megan in Hollywood and Megan too saw this role and felt like wow I am feeling really abused and dragged around and Mm. i'm feeling exploited and i think that like from what she said and when i was able to interview her at a a 10th anniversary screening was it it kind of like Mm. this isn't her direct quote but to me it sort of in my mind boils down to like this movie was kind of like her primal scream opportunity to Mm. exercise the way she had felt taken advantage of and screwed over in hollywood and make a movie that directly commented on those circumstances but in the context of high school and because the politics of how we sexualize and mistreat women certainly have a very vibrant and thriving petri dish that begins in like college, um, high school and middle school when when women start young women, you know, when girls, not young women, when girls start going through puberty and are treated as young women before they hit the threshold of 18 because we become mm-hmm. commodities as soon as we start having boobs. And so to have Megan in this role where she you I got I got to see concentrated that thing that i did love so much about the michaela baines part which was the clear Mm -hmm. spirit and ferocity of megan but embodied through just what happens to be one of my favorite screen archetypes which is the like queen bitch teen girl in a high school movie like that just like that's not gonna be one of everybody's favorite things but it's for a lot of people and certainly me one of my favorite things 
And it's so immediately, the fact that it opens with that quote from Amanda's, from a needy, Amanda's character, needy Les, Nikki, Mm -hmm. needy Les, uh, talking about like her lifelong friendship with Jennifer and sandbox love never dies. And they're the immediate interdependent, at least semi-emotionally abusive dynamic that they have between mm-hmm. the two of them. I think really immediately for the people who, for the for the women especially, women and girls who caught onto this movie when it, when they first saw it, it so immediately rang bells from imbalanced and vital relationships that we had had in our own young lives in a way that was appropriately vicious and appropriately tongue-in-cheek mm-hmm. and appropriately obsessive, but also surprisingly respectful and surprisingly tender mm-hmm. and surprisingly empathetic about the wonderfully rich reality of those dynamics that are so easy to parody and make look like mm-hmm. purely sort of salacious or dysfunctional fun from the outside, but that are actually fundamental to the to the emotional lives of the people in them. And they are the, they are the center of our worlds. They are, they are the... You know, they are the, the when you when you're in one of those dynamics, that other person is your son that you turn around. And this ju- this movie did such a good job of honoring that dynamic that it provides the foundation for all of the sen- sensational things that come afterwards. Because you have that heart so clear, that beating heart so clearly established at the very beginning with um, Needy and Jennifer and Amanda Seyfried's big wide eyed compliment to like the brunette, you know, vixen of Devil's Kettle. Uh, is such a perfect contrast for us to sort of attach onto. And what do you think setting Jennifer's body within the horror genre brings to exploring this extremely recognizable but also extremely toxic central friendship in at the heart of the story? Well, and and, and the the gifts the gift that horror gives us is so well embodied in in both uh, all cheerleaders die in Jennifer's body, which is where teen movies are wonderful. I love a teen movie. I love a high school coming of age movie. Um, they, they are, when you can make those a horror movie, that's just the absolute best because you're taking these, I mean, that's why something like Booksmart is really fun because it's taking the one crazy night movie and putting it into the context of a couple of outcast high schoolers and you put them in the biggest, craziest scenarios they could be in because that's the fun of it is seeing like young people do crazy things. That's why the movie like Good Boys, was it Good Boys or Bad Boys? The one, Like was so, you know, successful when it came out a couple years ago. We like seeing little boys swear. We like seeing like we like seeing, you know, young girls ripping up through the town on a crazy night because like at the end of the day, they're only 16 and this is wild and they're they're behaving badly. Well, you just take the most hyperbolic kind of movie we have, which is horror that lets you do everything bigger and louder and more on the nose. You you get to take out all subtlety and then you get to put in the metaphor of like body transformation and maybe like monsters, maybe a succubus, maybe a vampire, mm-hmm. and all the violence and and salaciousness that goes with that. And then you put that in like one of the most fun and bouncing and sort of like playing on your heartstrings and your nostalgia genres possible, like the high school friendship film. You get you you get the best of sort of like the emotional bomb that cinema can be. Because it gets to make everything bigger and louder. And you get to have, like, to me, because I like this kind of stuff, it just makes everything that I like about, like, the teens, the teen genre, even more fun. Because Mm -hmm. it gets to be brighter. And it gets to be louder. And it gets to be crazier. And it's not like a, oh, we kind of lost the narrative thread. We we sort of got off track here. It's like, no, it's supposed to be. This is a horror Mm -hmm. movie. Like, keep turning that volume up. That's what we want. And if there's anything where the blood, if there's anything where where the emotion... And the viscera and the pure emotional relentlessness is turned up. It is friendships between teenage girls. So oh, God. If, there, yes. if, there is, if there is a genre that is most indicative of the unruliness of the physical and emotional time in one's life that is being a teenage girl, the only appropriate analog for that can either be completely absurdist comedy or completely unhinged horror. <laughs> And that brings me neatly onto my next question is, so in this series, uh, I'm focusing a lot kind of on the female monsters on screen, but Jennifer's body is fascinating for many reasons, but it's probably one of the, probably the best, but it's also a rare type of monster to bring into a very familiar setting and a very familiar genre that has its own expectations. So it's both a high school movie with its own set of tropes and expectations from audiences, and it's both a horror monstery movie that has, that comes with its own set of expectations and ingrained audiences but then it brings in the succubus which is not really 
a familiar monster no. in either one of those genres. Really, it's no. not the one, you know, we've got vampires, we've got zombies, mm-hmm. we've got witches, we've got multiple versions, and some of them are much more coded feminine or much more associated with um with femininity or with women on screen than they are than others are. But succubus. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What do you think kind of about mm. um what do you think about the choice of monster for Jennifer's body? I it's kind of ideal. Um, it's, it's actually quite perfect because, um, I am pulling up a little definition in front of me so I can just read. It's just Wikipedia. This is not a primary source, but for just like a sort of offhand, let's put some terms to it. Like succubus is a demon or supernatural entity in folklore in female form that appears in dreams to seduce men, usually through sexual activity. And that's Lolita. That's, that's Mm -hmm. what Lolita is. It's, there is so much accountability shifted onto girls not young women sometimes young women yes but in the case of you know reality and this movie girls a kid a teenager um to be accountable for the desirousness of men and the people around them it is um their responsibility to not tempt it is their responsibility to cover their bodies lest they provoke it is their responsibility to make up for the boys will be boys ethos that lets the the, the boy the, the the kids around them the the male kids around them um, get away with preying upon uh, girls their their girls in their peer group because <clears throat> well what were we wearing did we have it coming were you asking for it and so that is epitomized by the snapshot of Jennifer and we get this brunette dangerous looking. A uh, teenage girl who, as uh, as her best friend tells at the start at the, the start of the movie, uh, tits are Jennifer's thing. Like Needy has to dress in certain ways to accentuate certain ways about her body because tits and cleavage that's that's Jennifer's thing. And she's like flirting with a adult man in a bar in Devil's Kettle the night of the Low Shoulder show, and she talks about like having sex with one of the cadets on the police force who is most certainly not in high school himself. And she's given that agency and given that self-determination, but she is also <clears throat> made to answer for that crime in a sort of backwards way that we never really see in a movie where the, the band Low Shoulder, who wants to be big famous pop stars, they sacrifice her because they assume her, all of her, her bad girl swagger and posturing actually means, well, she, actually, she isn't the thing that she honestly presents herself as we're going to make the assumption about her because we know better that she's actually got to be a virgin because no girl's selling it this hard that she is like so sexually adventurous and experienced is, is actually for real. So it turns on its head the idea of, well, no actually means yes. Well, low shoulder decides that because what they need from her is to be a virgin for a sacrifice that, that yes, like that her saying yes to sex in her life. Well, no, that actually, that actually means no. Because right now, that's what we need it to mean. And that's what we want it to mean. So regardless of, you know, one of the great things about this movie is that both Jennifer and Needy have active sex lives. And mm-hmm. they are not, Needy is preserved despite having a sexual relationship with her boyfriend, Chip. And so therefore, as like the final, you know, the final girl as the horror heroine, she lives in the end despite being, you know, sullied by not being a virgin anymore. Well, it, it's Jennifer's unapologetic departure from her virginity that is actually mm. what damns her in the eyes of these men who need her to serve a different purpose. But because she looks the way she does, surely, and because she has the reputation that she does, there can be a sort of societal excusing away of what would have happened to Jennifer. Because you can imagine the scenario in which there's a if there's a scene in this movie where she goes to the authorities and she's like, well, Low Shoulder did this to me. And they're like, well, Jennifer, we have heard things about you. Well, Jennifer, we we do, you know, it's a small town and like word gets around. And if you don't want people to think that you're that kind of girl, then you should probably make different choices. And that can be sort of considered a, like a a, a, re- a revisionist um, sort of extension of the narrative that's obviously not canonical. But it's played out too hmm. many times for us to say that that's not exactly what we know would happen in real life. So the the deftness of this movie to take those to take those high school tropes those constructs like you know the virginal girl the you know the nice girl 
than the, the mean girl, the one who's having sex, and put them in such p- perfectly ph- physically embodied forms as Amanda Seyfried and, and Megan Fox, and then to subvert those things entirely and do it joyfully and do it darkly mm. and viciously while also making you laugh. Like, this movie is funny as hell, and it still is. Yes. It's somehow, like, it's almost like Diablo Cody's way of writing dialogue is so specific to her that it's almost not, it's almost, it's not of its time. It is of, it is only of Diablo Cody. You don't watch this and think like, oh, this sounds like 2009. Diablo Cody never sounded yes. like 2009. She made certain parts of 2009 sound like her, but she exists in a snow globe of her own. So you watch it now and it's just like, oh, I don't actually feel yes. rooted in a time and place here except for those low rise jeans. I feel actually just like the- rooted in the brain of Diablo Cody. I wanted to ask you about Jennifer Speak actually in this because <laughs> I think one speak. of the one of the one of the two only things that dated this movie when I rewatched it for the purposes of this conversation mm. was a reference to Maroon Five as something that was cool. Right, right. And <laughs> and um I have a I have a notorious hatred for Adam Levine, <laughs> but I'm not gonna get into that. It would derail this whole thing. But <laughs> And also a reference to MySpace from Low Shoulder. Right, right, but right. other than that, it has this Heather-esque kind of bubble of um of timelessness where the teenagers speak like teenagers in a language that doesn't belong to anyone except that particular high school in that particular yes. small town. And it could be any small town that or any big town that or any yes. high school or any even subgroup of teenagers that all have their own particular way of speaking. And Jennifer is fascinating yep. because she almost has a dialogue, much like Heather's, much like the Heather's yep. in the film, have a dialogue that they almost create as a form of dominating the conversation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I wonder kind of what you think about her way of speaking, especially to Needy and interestingly also <laughs> to Chip, who I loved her yeah. antagonistic borderline jealous relationship to her best friend's boyfriend no it it is i it is jennifer it's jennifer speak it's not it is not of the aughts it just happened to Mm. have been created in the aughts and it it is a hyperbolic version i think of the way that like the, the sort of clueless california girl vernacular was very like a pop culture focused way of talking that Mm. proliferated is like oh this is how young people talk when it's like well no it's also like the idea of the valley girl accent is like nobody in that movie was from the valley and if they were it was very much made fun of like this is a beverly hills girl this is a bel-air girl (laughs) and so it it took something and it like it it was like a take on it was a hyperbolic take on like how youth people talk that like you said just Mm. actually makes ends up being when when you look at it in 2020 it's like the town of devil's kettle was just really isolated and somehow these kids just developed their own local vernacular and way of talking and and that is when you have just somebody who is very charismatic and who is sort of central to how you move through the world people take the cues from those people and absorb that it's like i think they do that too and never been kissed like there's the the popular Mm. kids like say like, oh, you know, Rufus is the word, spread it like wildfire. And then they, they've decided that Rufus is the word for cool. And so throughout the movie, more and more people start adopting the word Rufus, who are from the lower social, the lower social parts of the spectrum, because Rufus has been deemed cool by the cool kids. And Megan is, Megan is, Megan is Jennifer Check. She's like the head of the cheerleading team. She was like, what is it like the snowflake queen? You know, oh, well, that was, you know, two years ago before your eating disorder, as Needy points out to us. Like, so it's very believable that there could be this microcosm in this high school where people talk like that kind of because this girl talks like that. And it matriculates out to enough key people to where they perpetuate that style of speaking that it kind of it's a great representation of Diablo Cody and her just like sheer wittiness. And I do love it so. But it is also if you read into it further in that layer, totally believable that one person could potentially form their own little vernacular for the way that like maybe that Mm. four years of Devil's Kettle High School or like the two or three years around her, that's how they talk. Because that's kind of just how slang and and local vocabulary takes hold. She was an influence, really on the scale of Devil's Kettle, uh, Jennifer was an influencer. Yeah, she was an influence of the MySpace era, which you know, <laughs> was probably the the innocent, the true innocent times of social media. Wow, yeah. 
for yeah for those of those who live through it, <laughs> you know, the hardest choice you had to make was who were your top eight friends. That's it. But a, a, a toxic system. Tox to online <laughs> online social toxicity begins. Oh uh, yeah, it was uh, yeah good times. Oh yeah, um, <laughs> better times yeah! at least. Simpler at the very least, simpler. <laughs> There's a couple of things that I want to touch on, but one of the interesting things I'm going to bring it back into genre mm -hmm. is the way that Jennifer's monstrosity manifests and her transformation um, begins fairly early on in the film. I almost surprised myself whenever I watched it that it, it comes in really, really quickly and it's extremely graphic and extremely violent from the very, very beginning and also very supernatural. There is no finding out what she is. Yeah. She is just a fully fledged succubus. Yeah. So I wonder what your thoughts are kind of on the way that her monstrosity is filmed, the way that her body becomes mm. uh, demonic mm. or, you know, possessed. There's many ways you can refer to it and none of them I feel are entirely accurate mm -hmm. because it just sits in its own, in its own canon of its own creation. You know, it, it has to be touched on, of course, I think that the, the way in which the, the transformation is instigated when she's taken into the woods and she's put on the stump by low shoulder and the way that they, mm -hmm. the way that they sing and the way that they mock mm. her and the way that they laugh. Um, and, you know, the, the gag of, like, they have to print off the directions from the internet for how to do the ritual. Like, that's how bumbling and stupid they are. And, like, the internet is becoming a more ubiquitous part of our lives. And we all carry our map quest directions around this to get places. The, the mockery and abuse of her emotionally and her pain and her humanity when she's on that stump as they're about to kill her. They don't think she's coming back. They, she's not supposed to rise again. They, mm. They're killing a person. And they are... They're going to leave her this teen girl's body for dead in the woods and they're going to go on to be big, rich, and famous. Um, which is something that the rich and famous are allowed to do is to leave the bodies in the wake behind them um, in the entertainment industry that acutely takes the form of, of leaving women and, women and girls discarded behind them. And mm -hmm. Megan has spoken about how intense, and, and as has Karin, about how intense that day was on set to get through the filming the abuse. It was freezing cold. It was, you know, nighttime in, 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 in Canada. And it, she's laying there having to scream for her life as she's being made fun of. And she's having these adult men laugh at her as, as they're supposed to in, in accordance with the script. But it was a very cathartic experience, it, you know, in, in good and bad ways that she felt like it was analogous mm. to how she was sort of ripped apart through the studio system and, and by the media uh, at that time in her career, which to have that all come pouring out on a set in a way that you're being encouraged to go through that and come out the other side and not be like going through it and having like the director or or a producer be like, hey, what's wrong? What, what's going on? Are you OK? But to have someone like Karin there uh, understanding to, to have that be the reason that you were put in that part. You mm. she wasn't meant to experience that catharsis and hide why and internalize it and internalize it or, or process it silently. She was meant to put herself personally in that experience and live her her grief and her rage and her sadness and her fear through it. So it was like, oh no, I'm I'm allowed to to take to put the pain forward right now. I'm allowed to to put the darkness, you know, behind this very burnished pop image and have that be the fuel that gets me through this. And I'm I'm supposed to acknowledge why. And mm -hmm. with something like what I really like, a thing I really like about this movie is that a thing we do, I think, it's done well often, but I think a thing we tend to do too much in American movies is, is explain things. And I like an explanation. I like to be clear on things, but I, I think there's a, a need mm. to grapple with the supernatural or the strange or the unexpected in a way that creates a lot of dead narrative time. Like, you know, you watch you watch movies like the you watch movies like Ringu in in J Japan, and there's a sort of a neat, closer level of buy-in to the supernatural permeation of our natural world mm -hmm. where there isn't as much need to explain that there has been a violation between the boundaries of, of the material and the immaterial. And now those worlds are blending and bad things are happening. There's sort of like, Oh wait, you awakened the curse. We're fucked. How could you have awakened the curse? This is bad. Like now we're going to have to deal with the after effects of that. Whereas in so many American movies, there's so much time dedicated to the gaslighting. You didn't see that. That's not real. What are you talking about? There's got to be an explanation for this. There's this sort of like inherent disbelieving and a sort of, mm -hmm. for as fundamentalist as this country is religious, there's it, religiously, there is a, a, a wallop of sort of like spirituality 
and reckoning, reckoning with death in everyday life. That's something that we very much keep separate in an American life, life from death. And it's a very scary thing. And so this movie doesn't spend a lot of time explaining to you what Jennifer is. You kind of just have to come to it on your own. And maybe if you want to do some additional research, you can do that. Needy does her research and, and we learn from her, you know, in the movie. But with Jennifer, there isn't this reckoning that she has to come to with her new identity. She just is it. And it's kind of like, all right, mm-hmm. there's a sort of su- there's this sort of subtextual. All right. You thought I was the monster before. I'll just be the monster now. Like you you thought I was just this sort of ravenous teen girl, you know, wrecking my way through the world. Guess what? Now I drink boys blood to sustain myself. Like I am that man eating little girl. I am that Lolita that will cannibalize you mm. and seduce you away from your self-determination that you feared. And I'm not going to like fret about it. I'm going to stand in front of my mirror and I'm going to feel myself and I'm going to sort of experiment with the limits of my power by setting my own tongue on fire and see what happens. And I'm going to look, I'm going to be talking to my best friend on the phone and be, she's going to be telling you about like bodies still burning at the, at the bar that, you know, is now ash on the ground. And I'm going to say, I am a God. Like there is a very rapid leaning into her power that is very true Mm -hmm. to Jennifer Check. Like Jennifer wouldn't have a crisis of confidence about this. She wouldn't have a crisis of conscience about this. She would be like, all right, like my hair's getting stringy, my complexion's getting shitty, so I need to go out there and hit up my Sephora, which is drinking out of Kyle Gallner's body in an abandoned house, and so I'm going to do what I need to do. And I love the rapidity with which she just goes into her new phase. It's great. We don't waste time, and it's exactly what Jennifer would do, and Megan's Megan's proficiency with ballsiness and brazenness and 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 screen comedy is it allows mm. her to really thrive in that character without having to get muddled down in like the transition aspects of it. The change happens and she is now living the life of of the the, the thing that she is post change, mm. which is not too far divorced from the thing that men make women into when women are not agreeable and do not do what they say. I could listen to you talk about Jennifer's body for oh. hours, but to start wrapping up and moving into <laughs> our next yes. film, I wanted one of the things that I feel gets forgotten, or maybe not now, as we've, you know, as the reclamation of Jennifer's body is kind of almost complete. Yeah, yeah. You know, when we finally get a Blu ray release with a decent cover, that will, I think will be the final yes. version of the, the reclamation will be finalized. Yes. But one of the things I think kind of gets forgotten very often from the narrative around Jennifer's body is that it is a queer horror oh, film. Oh, yes. Or at least that is, you know, my understanding Absolutely. of it. So what do you think of this, of Needy and Jennifer's relationship as being a love story mm-hmm. and not just a friendship? The, the the queer horror aspect of this movie is so rewarding because it is both... um obviously textual in the way that they you know we see them kissing each other and we understand clearly in that moment if we may have assumed before that there is an additional element of this friendship where it is defined at least in part by like probably throughout their years together like as jennifer says like but we always share Mm -hmm. your bed when we have sleepovers this is an element of their friendship like sometimes it gets Mm -hmm. handsy sometimes it gets physically involved but at the same time what we see so often and I love I love psychosexual terrorizing female friendship movies. Those are some of my f- that's that's poss- that is absolutely one of my favorite categories of film. I love um, heavenly creature or was it beautiful creatures or heavenly creatures? Heavenly creatures. Heavenly creatures. Single white female. Yeah, love heavenly creatures. Love single white female. Love um, you know a fan of Persona, which is more muted, but they're still like a usurpation of 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 Absolutely. of self by these two like sort of mirror imaged women big fan of that whole canon truly i i love those kinds of movies what we don't get to see hardly ever slightly more now but still hardly ever mm. is the queering of intimate relationships between women that can exist between a romantic relationship a friend relationship, a sexual relationship, and a totally, like, platonic relationship. There, There is indeed gray areas within all of those sectors that are out sort of the bounds of what heteronormativity uh, tells us that, that, dis- that makes them 
that, that can puts them in their compartments from one another. Like I, for example, am a panromantic gray asexual person. That is how I identify. I didn't have that language until I was like in, I was 28 years old. But like once I mm-hmm. like had the words and it was explained to me, which is like capable of being attracted to any old person, um, the pan. And then the asexual, obviously giving you the like not having sex, but the gray in my case with a caveat to where like that's negotiable. Like I am to this point in my life, I've not had sex with a person, but it is not, it is something that I know is not necessarily a, a hard stop for me forever. Like to me, it's mm-hmm. something that like my sexuality feels a bit like a moving target. And I think there will be a process of evolution where along the lines, like those circumstances might change or, or a person might change my personal circumstances. Um, Whereas, like, an aromantic person, that's, you know, sort of colloquially defined as, like, my orientation is no. Like, no, no mm. touching, no kissing, none, no physical stuff. Yes. Whereas for me, I'm, I'm a very physical person. I'm a very affectionate individual. And as, a, as an ace person, the loves of my life are my friendships. That is mm. the, that is the, that is, that is the peak of intimacy for me. And, and, but for being sexually involved with people... I will give myself over as much to an intimate connection emotionally as another person is willing to meet me in that regard. And what that contrib- what that incorporates to with Jennifer's body is that we see in this movie the central friendship between Jennifer and Needy is the central love story without taking away mm-hmm. from the genuine connection between Needy and Chip. What we so often see in the mm-hmm. psychosexual like female terror movies is that it is them against the world is that these relationships must exist at the cost of all other relationships. Is that these two people are a microcosm where they don't know where one ends and the other begins. And the pressure of that and the consumptive power of it drives them to be murderous and insane. And that stuff is super fun to watch and I love it and it's erotic sometimes and it can be really hot and fun. But that's not quite, hopefully, real life for people. Whereas I can have these friendships in my life that are not paramount to romantic relationships, but tantamount. They exist in equal importance, mm. which is something that society tells us is not real. Because there's that phrase, we're just friends. As though friendship cannot exist at an emotionally significant tier to the romantic love in one's life. Well, what we see in this movie is, is Jennifer and Needy being interdependent on one another and having this actual, like, tele bond with one another where they can, like, Needy mm-hmm. can feel where Jennifer is and what she's doing. But that doesn't mean she loves Chip less. There is not less room in her life for Chip. I mean, you have to divide one's time. And of course, people get jealous of one another. That's just relationships. But it doesn't come at the cost of her love for Chip. She is just as devoted to him Mm -hmm. as she is a Jennifer. But they occupy separate parts Mm -hmm. of her life. So they don't have to be in competition with one another. They can coexist. And the fact that this movie recognizes that it doesn't have to be a war between these women and the world for them to be as close to each other as they feel compelled to be while also allowing for them to have other meaningful relationships in their life is so much more indicative of how the real world balance actually is when you're juggling the different types of relationships, you know, when you're in your sphere. And also it is so much more respectful of the meaning and depth and connection of these these friendships in our lives and, and you know speaking in the context of women the the necessity mm-hmm. of female connectivity between one another in a world that is so hostile to us to have those partnerships and companionships and 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 group dynamics where we can intimately bond with one another in a way that reinforces each of us and protects each of us and strengthens each of us and allows for us to be vulnerable in the face of so many things that want to hurt us this is vital and so I get my best friendship movie where like I get the great toxic female friendship thing that's super fun. And then I get my friendship love story movie where these two girls are so connected to one another that they are telepathically bound. And hey, because it's their way and they're totally down with it, consensually, sometimes they make out and touch each other. And that's totally cool. And you could have that in a friendship without it being a romantic relationships in your life because intimacy mm-hmm. is a very big spectrum. But it doesn't just have to mean the person you're fucking and they get to hear all your secrets and they're your one true companion and they're your other half of your heart. no. There's a lot of compartments that people can fit into. And so what this movie does is it actually gives a queer eye into female friendship that we so rarely see done with such nuance and respect and just 
wonderful humor while also giving us the fun genre aspects of it, which is why this movie gets to be a party too, where we get like a micro close up on a makeout because as Karin and Diablo have said, this is also a this is also a horror movie. This is a th- there is like that exploitation cinema bit of salacious fun that gets to creep into where it also gets to mm-hmm. be hot and it also gets to be sexy and it also gets to be fun. And those things can coexist in an intimate, tender story of female friendship without being exploitative of that fact. They can be complementary to one another. They do not have to exist as mutually exclusive when watching a horror movie, when watching a genre picture. I mean, I literally speechless <laughs> just nodding nodding aggressively which is again terrible podcast content i can be a real real stem winder so yeah it's a favorite topic and it's a favorite topic i can tell it's glorious to listen i can't wait for people to hear this i wanted to wrap up the conversation around jennifer's body mm-hmm. by asking so what I found really interesting about the ending of the film is that it's as I've kind of been revisiting or rediscovering a lot of these female monstrous films. One of the consistent tropes is that the monster always has to die at the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is consistent, not just with the monstrous feminine, but kind of usually the monster does have to be defeated. Yeah. But what I find interesting is though Jennifer does die mm-hmm. at the end. The monstrosity lives on in mm-hmm. Needy. So technically Needy becomes the the monster yeah. and she lives on and she gets to escape as well in the final mm-hmm. scene um so i was wondering what your thoughts are in the ending and kind of what do you think this film says about female monstrosity on screen in my head like it's not it's not a fault with, with the film that, that jennifer dies i in my in my mm. head canon i in in a 2020 me i'm like maybe now jennifer could live if it got made and everything stayed the same but they just changed that one little bit i think what i like about what I don't not like, what I accept because I want Jennifer to live. What I accept <laughs> about it is that when you have that really embattled friendship, sometimes the only way to emancipate yourself from it is to cut it out entirely. And because this is a genre movie, the circumstances of cutting it out means means killing the monster, means killing the person. I, I don't think this undermines their story as Jennifer and Needy because I think it's that thing of where like, listen. Sometimes you got to say no, like not everybody can stay in your life forever. It actually is the healthier thing sometimes to to cut a person out of your life that is a, that is mm-hmm. abusive or that is that is not a value add or that just makes your life harder or prevents you from growing and changing or that you're sort of so surgically bound to you actually can't be the best you while you're still attached to them. It's like a, it's a breakup like they essentially mm-hmm. had their ultimate breakup. But when you break up with someone in a horror movie you kill them in a bed by stabbing them with a box knife and they their monstrous form like deteriorates as their mom walks in and screams and finds you both there in in blood so i i but cuz like and what makes it work is the fact that the monstrous doesn't die and that mm-hmm. jennifer's power becomes her monstrosity after her transformation her her monstrosity she you know it's it's not an ideal way but it's what keeps her it's what gives her powers. It's what keeps her vital. It's what makes her the most radiant form of herself. And when that power passes on to Needy through, like, the injury she sustained from Jennifer, she, like, takes on qualities of the succubi, she, that enables her to break out of her mental institution prison. That it gives her the ability to levitate. It makes her stronger. It makes her more agile. It makes her more frightening. And so... We don't, I don't think we know necessarily if she has shed, if she is sort of like an evolution from it where she doesn't have to feed to live, but maybe she just sort of like got the good stuff, but doesn't have to take the murdery stuff with her. But she is able to live her life. She is able to live her life further on because of the monstrosity, she monstrous qualities she has taken on from her best friend. And no doubt too, like we, and we know from the credit sequence that she goes on to get vengeance for Jennifer, like regardless of everything that Jennifer did and killing Chip and <laughs> ruining her life in certain ways, she still was like, I'm going to find those fuckers and I'm going to kill them because they, they took Jennifer from me. They started all this and I'm not only like, I already ended it because she's gone, but you know what? For spite, I'm just going to take those bitch ass boys out of the game because that's what they deserve. <laughs> And then she's going to go on living her life probably harder to catch, harder to kill, harder to pin down Mm -hmm. because she is now embodies these qualities that she wouldn't be in possession of, 
you know, co- cost benefit analysis of it all, but that she wouldn't be in possession of unless without them having been imbued to her by Im- imbued into her by Jennifer. So it it the monstrosity comes with its give and take, which I think is a very I like a I like a revenge film where the person just rises at the end and like but for being a bl- bit beat up, they killed a million people and they came out, you know, alive and now they're going to go, you know, live their live their life afterwards. Like that's totally fun, but there is a cost benefit to this. There does get to be a bargain. Like I accept that the monstrosity does not come with only unbridled power and beauty and energy and life, but it also comes with the fact that you have to make the choice. You have to you have to be okay with the fact that your ledger is going to be read in certain ways because we shouldn't view we shouldn't view power as something that just comes without limits or restrictions. Like responsibly, we shouldn't view power as just something we only lust for without any boundaries on it. So I like the perpetuation of the female monster even if she can't like walk off hand in hand with Jennifer into the sunset at the end of the day. I like the perpetuation of the female monster, even while the malignant form of that monstrosity had to be put down for the story, for Mm -hmm. the story to end. Like, yeah, Jennifer was going to keep abusing that shit. So like, (laughs) Needy did what she had to do. But I think it's worth noting that in the process of killing the monster, when they have the the scene in the bed with the levitating and the fighting, the moment where Jennifer sort of relinquishes um, to needy the, where she sort of gives way in the fight is when she when needy pulls the locket from her neck when she pulls the biff necklace off yes and that yeah. you see you know megan kind of you see jennifer kind of relent and start falling backwards and as she collapses into the bed mm-hmm. the, like needy falls down and plunges the knife into her chest and you see the best friend necklace like tumbling and fall to the ground and like the most the, the thing that has been most deeply severed in that moment is their friendship. Like that's the heartbreak. That's the thing that for all of her posturing gets Jennifer to submit or shocks her enough mm-hmm. into sort of a moment of sobriety to like lose track of the fight and sort of lose her strength. And when she loses needy, she loses her power. She loses like for that moment, she loses the strength to sort of fight back. Mm-hmm. And that's an incredible, that's an incredible fucking metaphor. And as Diablo has said in interviews before, when Needy stabs her and Jennifer says, like, ow, my tit, and Needy says to her, no, your heart, like, that is, that is, that gets to the heart of, that gets to the core of what Cody wanted to convey, which is, like, we're going to make, like, tits jokes in this and we're going to laugh and we're going to have the Jennifer speak, but at the end of this, this is about the heart of it, and the heart of this is Jennifer and Needy, and by leaving you by breaking up with you by killing you like i'm breaking your heart and then they you know jennifer dies on the bed and it's a whole mess but (laughs) that is like i cry watching the end of that because it's just so good (laughs) and it like (laughs) you don't get things that revere you don't get things that are that much fun and that crazy that and are that Mm. like good looking that revere that kind of love story so much hardly ever Mm -hmm. and that it came in 2009 you know kind of a full decade before we considered those conversations as valid ones that we should be having more often in like mainstream cultural criticism circles that is so goddamn impressive like what they did was so goddamn impressive (laughs) and you know you fucked up the marketing fox atomic you know rap fox atomic but thanks for getting thanks for being hands-off while they were making this movie and letting them put out the product that they intended to create that still blows my mind to this day Despite all the terrible marketing and the terrible release, the film itself is intact and we can still watch it and we can still access it. Yeah. And the thing, and the thing, like when, when these interviews happen, you don't hear the creators behind it saying, this isn't the movie we intended to make. They, they got, they actually got to make the movie they wanted to make. It saw the world in the way that it was supposed to. And mm. it, it's shocking that for a company that, that so mismanaged um, and so misunderstood what it was that they actually just let it happen. That was a wonderful dissection of (laughs) Jennifer's body. Great! I'm so happy. (laughs) 